Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is it weaponized to suppress domestic free speech? That's what the Missouri Attorney General is saying. President Biden is at the two-year mark in his presidency. We take a look at some key figures that tell the story of his time as president. We take a look at the House Oversight Committee, both at the assigned members for the new Congress and what they plan to investigate. Extraordinary measures by the U.S. Treasury Department to avoid a default on the country's debt. What caused tens of trillions of dollars in debt? What are some solutions? And how much is the interest on the debt? We bring you analysis. In China, rising demand for cremation furnaces is hinting at the real COVID-19 death toll, and three foreign journalists were blocked as they went to investigate in the country. A group of national security officials worked day and night to flag so-called election-related misinformation and disinformation. They then provided it to social media platforms. That's what a newly released document describes. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. The document is the deposition of CISA official Brian Scully. CISA means the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Scully testified that, quote, In 2020, we did some switchboard work on behalf of election officials. Switchboard work, Scully explained, means getting alerts from election officials about social media content, content they deem to be disinformation, and then passing on those concerns to social media companies. Scully says there was a, quote, understanding that the social media platforms would then apply their moderation policies to the content. He says switchboard work took a lot of manpower and that the team took shifts. Communication with social media companies included regular sync meetings between government and private sector companies. The meetings were originally on a quarterly basis, then monthly at some point in 2020, then twice a week starting about a month before the 2020 presidential election. Scully said that representatives from Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, Google, Reddit, and others took part in these meetings. The Department of Justice, the FBI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the DHS were also present. The deposition is part of a court-ordered discovery process in a lawsuit filed last year by Missouri and Louisiana against the Biden administration. The suit alleges collusion with social media giants to suppress Americans' free speech. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey says the document shows that CISA has been weaponized to suppress domestic free speech. Bailey and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry have been investigating what Landry called the widespread and systematic collusion between big tech and big government to censor Americans. Bailey tweeted, quote, This is just the tip of the iceberg. We look forward to releasing more documents. CISA did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Landry's and Bailey's assertions. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A federal judge sanctioned former President Donald Trump and his attorneys yesterday. He ordered them to pay nearly a million dollars in fines, this for suing former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. They claimed she tried to rig the 2016 presidential election by falsely accusing his campaign of links to Russia. U.S. District Judge John Middlebrooks says the sanctions were warranted. He says the former president has exhibited a pattern of misusing the courts to further his political agenda. 
The same judge threw out Trump's lawsuit in September. The judge says no reasonable lawyer would have filed it, adding that it was intended for political purposes. Judge Middlebrooks was appointed to the bench by President Bill Clinton in 1997. In 2019, special counsel Robert Mueller found there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia after a nearly two-year investigation. President Biden has officially responded to the discovery of classified documents on his property. Here's what he said when a reporter asked him if he regrets not revealing the existence of the documents before the midterms. Hang on. Okay, look. As we found, uh, we found a handful of documents were failed, uh, were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives and the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Biden made the comments on Thursday at a press conference in Optos, California. Reporters persistently asked him about the documents. White House attorneys disclosed that the first batch of materials was found on November 2, 2022, at the Penn Biden Center. More documents were found on December 20, 2022, in the garage of Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. On January 11th and 12th, more documents were found in Biden's home library. These are classified documents from Biden's time as vice president. The Justice Department will look into the issue and decide whether Biden broke the law. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed Robert Hur, a former U.S. attorney, to serve as special counsel. Turning now to the U.S. debt ceiling saga, some economists are warning of a serious fallout for Americans if a standoff occurs in Congress. And if negotiations are unsuccessful, the country could default on its debt. In that event, there are concerns that Social Security and Medicare benefits would stop going out. We hear more from an expert on the Treasury's moves to postpone a disaster and some solutions to the problem. Joining us now is Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting and senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty. Thank you for coming on the show, Vance. It's a pleasure to be with you today. The Treasury Department initiated so-called extraordinary measures after the country hit its debt limit on Thursday. First, can you explain how these measures work to avoid a default? Well, yes, we reached our debt limit of $31.4 trillion with a T. It's a massive amount of national debt that's increased from government spending over a number of years. You know, the federal government has already raised the national debt limit uh, 78 times just since 1960. So this has been a massive increase. And the last time we haven't had a national debt was 18 in the 1830s under Andrew Jackson. And so we've seen a massive increase in the debt over time. Um, and this is something that's going to take extraordinary measures by the Treasury in order to pay on the interest on the debt over time. The Federal Reserve may even be able to get involved. But, but Kevin, at the end of the day, this is just excessive government spending. So you touch on the fiscal policy that's resulted in what we have now. So some reports are claiming that this round of debt ceiling drama could be different, that there's a chance it might not work itself out and that the impacts will be short-lived. Could we be in for a financial crisis? And what are the solutions to this recurring problem? I think if this is the reason why it's so important to have a debt limit, 
Just like individuals and people, you wouldn't want them to not have a credit card limit to just run up a massive amount of debt that they couldn't pay. This is not Congress's money. This is the people's money. And so they should be spending more conservatively over time. Um, this is one reason why I'm in favor of a spending limit, something that really limits the growth of spending, to population growth plus inflation. Because if not, you get this rampant spending, the rampant debt, and the massive amount of inflation all around us throughout the economy. This is just um, irresponsible. We need responsible American budgets that grow by no more than the average taxpayer's ability to pay for them. And ultimately, they should be spending less, Kevin, because it's just infiltrating throughout our entire economy and creating economic distortions along the way. We've had wars that were that consumed a lot of money, infrastructure packages, and I know you're talking about a spending limit, which is a concept. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said the debt ceiling is not something we should be playing around with. He said regarding the debt ceiling, it's part of the financial structure of the world. Can you give us just a sheer scope of what we're dealing with here? The United States economy is massive, right? Uh, over $20 trillion. Now we've got over $30 trillion in debt. That is 120% of GDP, our entire economy. But the United States economy, being how large it is, and being the connected um, international trade with, with trade and everything else that's going on, this is a global economy that happens. And so if the United States can't pay its debt, then that's going to have other repercussions for the rest of the world. Higher interest rates, um, less money that's going to pay for the debt in other countries, and they may be using some of that to pay for their government spending as well. Um, and so this does have a repercussions across the global economy. The Biden administration and Congress have about six months to prevent a default. The White House press secretary said Congress must deal with the debt limit and do so without conditions. What do we expect to happen here? I think that's irresponsible to not have conditions put in place to raise the debt limit. Basically, you're raising the credit card without saying you need to spend less or have spending restraint in the process. That's just clearly irresponsible. And so there has to be a situation where we're spending less, putting some sort of guidelines in place, kind of like the Budget Control Act of 2011, I think would be a good one, to where if you're going to spend more, we need to have cuts in other areas to not continue to run up the massive debt that we have. And look, just on the national interest, uh, net interest on the debt alone is going to be over a trillion dollars soon. So I don't care if somebody's a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, or someone else, we can all think about better ways to spend over a trillion dollars. And ultimately, a lot of that should be back in the pocket pockets of Americans with lower taxes and, and, and everything else. And so, look, this is at the end of the day, we need a responsible budget that puts in place spending restraint, and that will allow us to have a more prosperous future. About a trillion dollars in interest, that certainly is a challenge. Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting and senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty, really do appreciate your analysis on this. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Today marks the second anniversary of President Biden's inauguration. Let's take a moment to examine his first two years in office. The story of the first half of President Biden's term is a mixed bag. Here are some revealing data points at the two-year mark. Annual inflation remains stubbornly high at 6.5 percent. That figure reached a four-decade high of 9.1 percent in June of 2022. But the good news is inflation is slowly falling at the moment. For the sixth month in a row, inflation has come down. Measured over the last 12 months, it has fallen 6.5 to 6.5%. The federal debt stood at $27.6 trillion when Biden took office. It's now over $31.3 trillion. American drivers were paying on average $2.39 per gallon the week Biden took office. Gas prices reached a peak at $5.02 per gallon in June 2022. Prices have now fallen to $3.36 per gallon. 
The U.S. has committed $24.2 billion of security aid to Ukraine since the war started nearly 11 months ago. Today, I'm announcing the next tranche of our security assistance to Ukraine. $1.85 billion package of security assistance. A record number of illegal immigrants entered the U.S. under the Biden administration. U.S. Customs and Border Protection stopped nearly 2.4 million illegal border crossers during fiscal year 2022, which ended in September. In 2021, that figure was over 1.6 million. Biden won Senate confirmation for 97 of his picks to the federal bench, including Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. He has outpaced his two immediate predecessors on judicial nominations. Biden has also granted nine pardons and 80 commutations so far. This is far more than any of his recent predecessors at this point in their presidencies. Biden held fewer solo or joint news conferences than his three most recent predecessors at the same point in their presidencies. There were just 21 of them to date. What does Biden himself have to say halfway through his term? I'm excited about the next two years. I think we're going to, you've heard me say it a hundred times, but uh, um, I am more optimistic about America's prospects than I've ever been in my career. So It remains to be seen how the figures will change in the next two years. Republicans unveiled their full roster for the House Oversight Committee this week. We take a look at their picks and what they plan to investigate. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg reports. The House Oversight Committee for the 118th Congress will be chaired by Representative James Comer. Republican members include Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Jim Jordan, Nancy Mace, Byron Donalds, Lauren Boebert, and Paul Gosar, among others. The full House Republican conference still has to vote and approve the recommendations, which is seen as a formality. Democrats have yet to reveal their picks for the committee. The White House criticized Republicans for the appointments on Wednesday. One spokesman accused them of handing the keys of oversight to the most extreme mega members of the Republican caucus. He says they may be setting the stage for divorce from reality political stunts instead of engaging in bipartisan work on behalf of the American people. Republicans have accused the Biden administration of obstructing congressional investigations in the weeks leading up to the new Congress. The White House refused to answer Republicans' oversight requests in December. They requested documents on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the origins of the coronavirus before the end of last year. Special Counsel Richard Sauber called the requests constitutionally illegitimate because Republicans didn't yet hold a majority or control over congressional committees. House Republicans have laid out their investigation plans. First off, a probe into President Biden's handling of documents with classified markings. Next, a hearing on the Biden administration's border policies starting in February. They've also pledged to look into the business dealings of Hunter Biden to find out if there's any connections to the president. Other investigations will include the fentanyl and energy crises, pandemic relief fraud, the Afghanistan withdrawal, and the origins of the coronavirus. The GOP says now that they have the gavel, oversight and accountability are here. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former California Democratic Party official Melahat Rafi has accepted a plea deal with federal prosecutors. The case involves an FBI corruption probe in Orange County. Rafi will plead guilty to one felony count of attempting to commit wire fraud. It's for trying to defraud one of her cannabis clients. The Department of Justice says she also admitted to bribing two members of the Irvine City Council, both on cannabis-related matters. She faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. The plea agreement says Rafi agreed to give at least $225,000 in bribes to Irvine City Council members. 
That was in exchange for introducing and passing a city ordinance enabling her cannabis clients to open retail stores in the city. And still to come, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is requiring universities in his state to send him a report of all transgender medical procedures. And the Federal Aviation Administration reveals what caused the nationwide flight disruptions last week. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has requested data from state universities on the number of transgender treatments performed on students under 18. Requested by February 10th are data on how many treatment sessions there were, breakdowns into how many of those were first-time encounters, how many patients university clinics referred to other medical facilities, and a list of those outside facilities. The memo makes clear the governor is not seeking information on individuals, but just the numbers. There's growing concern about transsexual surgery and medical treatments with increasing reports of recipients regretting it or suffering side effects. Transsexual medical treatment has become big business. It's estimated to rise from $2.1 billion in 2022 to $5 billion in 2030. The number of those identifying or diagnosed as transgender has mushroomed. Government studies estimate that in 2022, the number of Americans identifying as transgender grew to 1.4 million. The Federal Aviation Administration has revealed what happened on January 11th when a systems outage grounded thousands of flights and disrupted air travel across the U.S. Over 11,000 flights were disrupted when a key pilot notification system went down, stranding some planes on the ground for hours. The FAA has been probing the reasons behind the failure. The agency's preliminary review says contract staff unintentionally deleted files when transferring data between databases. It added that it has so far found no evidence of a cyber attack or malicious intent. Aviation insiders said they couldn't recall a system-wide outage of such magnitude that was caused by a technological snag. Boeing has been ordered to appear in a Texas federal court next week. The aerospace manufacturer faces a fraud charge involving the certification of the 737 MAX. The case is connected to a 2019 crash where all 157 people on board died, leading to a 20-month grounding of the jet. Boeing entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the federal government in 2021, but it did not involve family members of the crash victims. They argued to the court that they should have been allowed to participate in the case, and a judge agreed. Now families of the victims or their attorneys may speak at the hearing. U.S. wireless carrier T-Mobile said on Thursday that an unidentified malicious intruder breached its network in late November. Data on 37 million customers was stolen, including addresses, phone numbers, and dates of birth. T-Mobile said in a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that the breach was discovered January 5th. Based on their investigations, the attack did not include passwords, bank account information, or social security numbers. T-Mobile says an investigation on the attack is ongoing, but the malicious activity has been contained. 
The company has been hacked multiple times in recent years. T-Mobile agreed in July to pay $350 million to customers who filed a class action lawsuit. That was after the company disclosed that personal data, including social security numbers and driver's license information, had been stolen. Nearly 80 million U.S. residents were affected. T-Mobile said at the time that it would spend $150 million through 2023 to fortify its data security and other technologies. U.S. agents in southern Arizona made what may be a large drug bust yesterday. They hauled in nearly 440 pounds of a powdered substance. They suspect it is a precursor for making fentanyl. Law enforcement had been conducting an investigation for several months. A series of suspicious packages from China were sent to a warehouse and residence over some time. The packages had no clear identification of their contents. HSI Tucson shared on Twitter that they served search warrants at two locations in the Midtown area of Tucson. The investigation is ongoing into who was involved in shipping and storing the chemicals. Whether they were part of a local crime group or an international drug organization is yet to be determined. The DEA calls fentanyl the deadliest drug in the nation. It's responsible for two-thirds of the more than 100,000 overdose deaths in 2021. Mexican drug cartels have made most of the illegal fentanyl seen in the U.S. in recent years, but investigators have seen signs lately that more producers may be trying to make fentanyl inside the U.S. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is increasing the regulation of organic products for the first time in more than 30 years. The USDA's new rules are toughening up on production, handling, and sales. The agency is also putting what it calls layers of protection around the organic seal. It means more on-site inspections and businesses will need to show that important parts of their supply chain are organic. The rule change also standardizes training and operations requirements for organic businesses and personnel. It goes into effect on March 20th. Those affected will have a year to comply with the changes. Next, let's take a look at newly released body cam footage of first responders rescuing a woman from her car in an icy pond. The accident took place in Wisconsin. She's still in there? Yeah, water's up to her chest. They're fucking throwing the wet right now. I think it's at the bottom. This is not a very, this is not a very deep pond. Hey, can you open that door at all? Here, if you can get on top, here, give, can you get the baton and smash that front window out? A local news station obtained the footage a few days ago. The crash happened on the night of December 22nd during a snowstorm. The video shows one firefighter breaking her side windows and opening the driver's door. They use a rope to pull her out. The temperature was around minus 22 with the wind chill that night, and those conditions, frostbite can set in within 30 minutes. If someone is submerged in water, they could get hypothermia within minutes. Authorities on Hawaii's Big Island are looking for some brazen thieves who stole a prized piece of cultural artwork from a historical hotel. Officers with the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park say two people made off with this replica of a traditional feather helmet worn by high-ranking Hawaiian chiefs. Investigators say the piece was in a display case in the Volcano House Hotel lobby when it was stolen on January 13th. These newly released images from the hotel's video surveillance system show a man and a woman near the hotel's front desk around the same time of the theft. Officers are now using social media to try to identify them. And just ahead, experts are questioning Beijing's official COVID-19 death toll. And how is China's reopening affecting other nations? 
New protests broke out in China. COVID-19 test workers and medical staff are demanding their unpaid wages. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. As China's official COVID death toll of 60,000 is being questioned, three foreign journalists travel to China to find out what's really going on. However, they met with some resistance. Entity's Tiffany Meyer has this report. An update on China's death wave. Chinese health authorities said on Thursday the number of COVID-19 patients needing critical care in China's hospitals has peaked, meaning it will soon start to go down. Alongside the news, Chinese Communist Party head Xi Jinping said light is ahead. But is that message the full picture? Three foreign reporters wanted to investigate for themselves, so they traveled to northwestern China's Gansu province to take a closer look. According to Radio Free Asia, the local propaganda department sought to counter these foreign reporters. To do it, the agency issued an urgent notice to all districts and communities, requesting they pay close attention and report the journalists' whereabouts to authorities immediately. It also warned residents not to give interviews. Worth noting, the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda department focuses on spreading CCP ideology. It also works to censor all media inside China. Its authority reaches from the country level down to provinces, counties, cities, and even city districts. Go there, please, please. This department also recently issued a similar notice, but directed at residents instead of reporters. It mainly targeted Lunar New Year travelers who plan to return home to parts of rural China for the holiday urging them not to publish articles or other information about the so-called dark side, meaning the real situation surrounding the pandemic. Despite the propaganda department's efforts to keep certain details quiet, Chinese internet users have kept posting new information online. In one case, reports highlight row after row of newly dug graves yet to be filled. Others capture long lines of cars waiting outside a funeral home. Due to the surge, no funeral services are being held before cremation. Instead, relatives must say farewell to their loved ones outside the building or while their bodies are still inside vehicles. One person in this video explained how people started lining up the previous night and how the funeral home gave out more than 1,000 numbered tickets, indicating each person's position in line for services. In southwestern China's Sichuan province, dozens of mourning decorations line a local street. This month, at least 37 tenders or requests for goods related to cremation furnaces have appeared in bidding announcements published by provincial authorities. For example, the funeral home in southern China's Shantou City wrote that it needed to, quote, urgently buy two cremation furnaces, requiring delivery within three days. At the same time, people are questioning the country's official death toll, recently published by the Chinese communist regime.
China's top health body said about 60,000 died of the virus between December 8th last year and January 12th this year. China affairs expert Jiang Feng commented on the number. A report, which is officially recognized by the CCP, shows that 900 million people are infected. If the death toll of 60,000 were real, the COVID-19 deaths would be even less than half of the tuberculosis deaths in 2021, according to China's official data. But will the CCP cut off its financial lifeline in Shanghai for a disease that is less dangerous than tuberculosis? Will it put all major cities across the country under lockdown? Another China affairs expert compares the figure with that of other countries. If the death toll of 60,000 is reliable, it means the COVID-19 death rate across the whole of China would be only 0.0066%. This would be much better than all the countries that have vaccines and sufficient medical resources, and these countries have loosened restrictions step by step under better control. In his opinion, Tang went on a call the 60,000 death estimate a joke. China's border has been open for about two weeks. Some countries set up restrictions for travelers from China, such as COVID-19 testing before flight boarding, wastewater testing for planes from China, and quarantine rules for passengers who test positive after arriving. But other nations have taken a different approach, giving arrivals from China a free pass. New Zealand and some Asian countries are among them. So how's the situation developing there so far? Are new outbreaks popping up in those nations? On the contrary, infection and death numbers are on a slight downtrend in New Zealand. Over in Asia, despite crowds of Chinese tourists pouring into Thailand, officials have seen no significant change in COVID-19 numbers, as compared to when China's borders were sealed. Still, it's only been 11 days since China's reopening, and Beijing is refusing to share virus sequencing and many other information with the world. So for now, it might be too early to judge. We'll keep you updated. A new wave of protests is flaring up in China. This time, pandemic control workers are demanding wages they say they're owed, but that haven't been paid. Here's more on the little-known fallout from Beijing's lifting of COVID-19 curbs. Hundreds of virus test kit workers confronted the police, protesting layoffs and pay cuts. These videos show the recent unrest in two Chinese cities. The country's mass testing industry saw a major change from stringent zero COVID-19 measures. But with that policy no longer in place, revenue for test kit makers has begun plummeting. Workers now fighting for their paychecks as the Chinese New Year holiday approaches. Some, out of desperation, threatened to jump from buildings if they weren't paid. These workers aren't alone. Frontline medical staff are also speaking out. In Shangxi province, healthcare workers went on a mass strike in front of a hospital to demand their salaries. Reports say the hospital hasn't paid social insurance for temporary workers for years or even health insurance. Near the eastern seaboard, nurses in one city railed against overwork and wage delays. Elsewhere, in another hospital, one nurse sobbed, saying she and her colleagues worked overtime despite being sick themselves, but the hospital didn't pay them for their time. Members of a different group are also seeking their paychecks. They were once assigned to enforce COVID-19 restrictions, known by their iconic white hazmat suits. But now what awaits them is unemployment. 
Beyond the healthcare sector, wage protests have spread to state-owned enterprises and other large companies. Multiple Twitter posts say even the construction projects, funded by local branches of China's Communist Party, are delaying workers' wages. To pay for the CCP's costly pandemic control, local authorities were put under financial pressure. Some provinces reportedly diverted funds from public programs to manage it. A massive fire in the South Korean capital. Flames leveled about 60 houses in southern Seoul. Authorities have evacuated more than 500 people. The blaze broke out at around half past six Friday morning local time. Official video shows huge plumes of smoke rising from a shanty town. Hundreds of firefighters and 10 helicopters were involved in efforts to control the fire. They managed to put out the flames after about five hours. No casualties have yet been reported. The village is known as one of the last slums in Seoul, with more than 600 families living in the area. Houses there are prone to fires, floods, and other disasters, as they are mostly built out of cardboard and wood. Residents also have to worry about safety and health issues. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, the population in Germany reached an all-time high in the past year after more than 700,000 Ukrainians arrived there after fleeing the war. And France is reeling from nationwide strikes and protests against plans to raise the retirement age. But President Emmanuel Macron vows to proceed with the pension reform. More shortly here on NTD News Today. South Africa is joining China and Russia for joint military exercises called Operation Mosi. It'll be off the coast of South Africa in February. The exercises are planned to take place over 10 days and coincide with the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The South Africa National Defense Force posted on social media that the drills are intended to, quote, strengthen the already flourishing relations between South Africa, Russia, and China. The statement says 350 South African personnel will work alongside Russian and Chinese forces to share skills and knowledge. The move to build military ties with Russia and China is likely to sour South Africa's relations with the United States. South Africa has been growing apart from its Western partners since 2018. In 2019, the nation engaged in its first military exercises with Russia and China. Germany's population rose to a record high in 2022. It had been on the decline over the past three years, but as Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war came to the country, the population has now hit over 84 million. Ukrainians arriving in Germany in the first half of the year already contributed to an increase of 740,000 people. By contrast, earlier refugee crises prompted by violence in Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq in 2015 added just over 750,000 new residents. The flow of immigrants from other countries also increased by almost 50 percent in 2022, according to the German newspaper Handelsblatt, mostly from people applying from Syria, Afghanistan and Turkey. Germany's interior minister says that the country has been taking in more migrants than its European neighbors. Some German lawmakers are worried about the country's capacity in the long run. Immigrants now make more than compensated for a low birth rate and aging population. The overall proportion of Germans of working age has risen from just under 62 percent to almost 76 percent. 
A new program allows Americans to sponsor refugees to live in the United States. It's called the Welcome Corps, and the State Department unveiled it yesterday. Here's how it works. A group of at least five people can apply to sponsor refugees from around the world. The sponsors could be from a community group, faith-based organization, college or university, or a veterans group. They have to pass background checks, raise at least $2,275 per refugee, and help the refugees resettle in the U.S. That could include finding a place to live, helping enroll children in school, and teaching how to use public transportation. Our goal in 2023 is to mobilize 10,000 Americans to step forward as private sponsors and help resettle at least 5,000 refugees. The State Department says the refugees still have to go through extensive security vetting. Thousands of nurses across England continue to strike in a dispute over pay while around 1,000 ambulance workers in Wales also walked out. General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing said nurses have been left deeply disappointed after the government ruled out a compromised 10% pay settlement. She said only when the government compromises will the strike end. It will end when this government does the decent thing for the nursing staff that they have pushed out onto picket lines and give them a decent wage and allow them back in to look after their patients because that's what they want to do. It comes as health leaders begin to make contingency plans for what could be the biggest walkout in the history of the National Health Service. Unions representing nurses and ambulance workers are scheduled to strike on the same day, February 6th. That will include thousands of nurses and more than 10,000 ambulance workers, including paramedics, emergency care assistants, and call handlers. Further strikes are also planned throughout February and March. The NHS Confederation and NHS providers both express concerns about how the NHS will cope and urge the government to talk to unions about pay. In France, hundreds of thousands of workers went on strike Thursday and joined marches across the country. They halted trains and cut electricity production in protest against government plans to raise the retirement age to 64, a two-year increase. The stoppages are a major test for President Macron, who says his pension reform is vital to ensure the system does not go broke. Opinion polls show Macron's plans are hugely unpopular. Entities France correspondent David Vives has more. France faced severe disruptions on what unions have called Black Thursday. Strikes and protests extended across the country in opposition to government plans to raise the retirement age to 64. The SNCF rail operator said barely any local or regional trains were running. Shipments were blocked at some oil refineries. Power firm EDF said electricity output was down by about 12%. And about 20% of flights were cancelled at Paris's number two airport. In the capital, commuting was almost impossible, as metro drivers were among those who walked off their jobs. This passenger says that even though his train got cancelled, he supports the strikers. Yes, I'm for the strikes. It's an expression of dissatisfaction with the government's decision. Well, it's good that there is this kind of exchange of dialogue. It works out. According to a recent poll, two-thirds of French oppose the government plans. Union leaders said Thursday was just the beginning. This is a first step. We will see how the government reacts. 
If the government does not listen to the striking workers, the French people, the citizens, well, then there will be a next step. The 63-year-old pensioner says he's worried to see his grandchildren working themselves to exhaustion. It takes a toll on your nerves and your mental state. It's really too hard. And at 64, I don't see them working in those conditions. French President Emmanuel Macron, speaking on a visit to Spain, defended the reform. He said that changes ensure the pension system remains fair based on equality between generations. France is one of the last European countries to reform its pension system. The European Union has been pushing the government for several years to act. Moreover, the rising public deficit didn't leave Macron many options. Uh, France has a huge public debt and the uh, pension system, the public pension system is uh, regularly in deficit. Uh, starting next year, it should be around 10 billions of euros per year, which in itself is not much. But if you add it every year for 20 years or 30 years, it, it adds up to quite a big amount. The reform's losers are expected to be members of the middle and working class, especially the ones who have started to work relatively early with a full career ahead of them. The challenge for unions is to transform the opposition to the government plans into a mass social movement, which could eventually force the government to change tack. The nationwide walkout comes after a series of protests from healthcare and demonstration over the cost of living crisis. These strikes and protests are a new test for the French president, who already faces a stronger position in the parliament, but now also in the streets. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. France's interior ministry says more than a million demonstrators took to the streets on Thursday, including 80,000 in Paris. Protests in major French cities, including Paris, Marseille, Toulouse, Nantes and Nice, brought many transport services to a standstill. An estimate by the leaders of the union CGT put the turnout at more than 2 million. Croatians are complaining about steep price hikes after the country introduced the euro on January 1st. The situation has left the government and businesses at odds as traders blame inflation for the price increases. At this open-air market in Zagreb, people are on the hunt for the freshest produce and the lowest prices. But since Croatia started using the euro at the beginning of the year, shoppers say prices have spiked, making that hunt a lot harder. We have all felt the price increases. It's certainly 30% more for everything. This shopper says he's felt it too, adding that he knows people looking for new jobs to cope. When traders began to round prices from the local currency in January, most shot up. The government has threatened sanctions unless they cut prices back again, but traders point the finger at inflation. We have been observing what's happened from January 1st, when we switched to the euro, and the prices have been going wild. Energy, oil, electricity and water prices didn't change in the previous two months. We switched to the euro, and the prices are still rising between 5 and 20%. I can say every day in the last 10 days, it depends on the product. Over a two-week period, inspectors handed out fines totaling more than $250,000 and found about 40% of businesses hiked prices unjustifiably. Critics say the government rushed to introduce the euro amid an energy crisis and high inflation. Last year, Croatia reported one of the highest inflation rates in the EU, with an annual rate of 10.8%. 
but the government has long argued the euro will make Croatia's economy stronger and make the country more resistant to external shocks. Staying in the Balkans, heavy rains are causing serious flooding in the southern part of Serbia. Two men fell into a river and were swept away by the current. This happened on Thursday. Security camera footage showed a man falling into the river from a small bridge. He was trying to rescue another man who had been taken away by the current. The two men are considered missing and local authorities have declared a state of emergency. Heavy rain fell throughout the night in the region. The river burst its banks and flooded nearby houses and the riverside promenade. Authorities say more rain is expected over the next few days. And coming up, a thousand ancient Maya settlements, including over 400 cities, were discovered under the dense jungles in Guatemala and Mexico, and they were linked by highways. And a portal to another universe, or just Mother Nature putting on a show? Whatever the explanation, people in Turkey were captivated by something unusual in the sky. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. A UFO-like cloud covered the sky in the Turkish city of Bursa yesterday. The bizarre cloud formation bewildered residents early in the morning. The surreal sight has gone viral on social media. The sunrise shifted the colors of the massive cloud from orange to red and to yellow. The country's meteorological office told local media that the peculiar formation was an example of lens clouds. Those are generally formed as a result of strong wind fluctuations over hills and mountains. Eyewitnesses said the shape remained intact for about an hour before disappearing from the sky. Astronomers have a new mind-blowing portrait of the Milky Way. Scientists with the National Science Foundation used a dark energy camera through a telescope in Chile. Over two years, the camera captured more than 21,000 exposures that were able to cut through galactic dust that had previously obscured the stars and star-forming region. The portrait reveals more than 3 billion new celestial objects. A leading NSF director said the results were like taking a group photo of over 3 billion people and every single individual is recognizable. The director said astronomers will be poring over this new detailed portrait of the Milky Way for decades to come. You can find more information about it in the Astrophysical Journal Supplement. A new high-tech study has revealed nearly a thousand ancient Maya settlements linked by what may be an ancient highway network. Let's have a look. The discovery found 417 cities hidden for millennia by the dense jungles of northern Guatemala and southern Mexico. LiDAR technology was used to shoot pulses of light into the dense forest, allowing researchers to peel away vegetation and map ancient structures underneath. Among the details revealed are possibly an extensive system of stone highways or superhighways. Around 110 miles of spacious roadways have been revealed so far, with some measuring around 130 feet wide and elevated off the ground by as much as 16 feet. From northern Guatemala to southern Mexico, the researchers have identified pyramids, ball game courts, plus significant water engineering, including reservoirs, dams, and irrigation canals. LIDAR captured 1,700 
um, acres or kilometers squared of terrain, exposing all of the built features and their interconnections with hydraulic systems, with transportation networks, causeways, and residential zones, agricultural zones, and also um, how this cultural system was interconnected with the natural system. All of the newly identified structures were built centuries before the largest Maya city-states emerged. They date back to around 1000 to 350 BC. Down in Chile, scientists are unearthing the southernmost dinosaur fossils recorded outside Antarctica. They include fossils of megaraptors and dinosaurs with feathers. Megaraptors were a carnivorous dinosaur that inhabited parts of South America during the Cretaceous period some 70 million years ago. They dominated the area's food chain before their mass extinction. Scientists found their fossils in sizes up to 32 feet long. Researchers say the findings could help to understand South America's connection to New Zealand and Australia. Scientists also discovered some unusual remains of dinosaurs which were likely covered in feathers. Paleontologists working in central India have made a rare discovery, a fossilized dinosaur hatchery with 92 nests and 256 eggs. They belong to colonies of giant plant-eating titanosaurs that lumbered across what's now central India more than 66 million years ago. The nests are filled with bowling ball-sized eggs ranging between 6 to 7 inches. The find reveals intimate details about the lives of the colossal long-necked sauropods. It suggests titanosaurs were not always the most attentive parents. The lead study author and paleontologist at the University of Delhi said since titanosaurs were huge in size, closely spaced nests would not have allowed them to visit the nests to maneuver and incubate the eggs or feed the hatchlings as the parents would step on the eggs and trample them. The nesting behavior shares characteristics with today's birds and crocodiles, such as laying eggs together in colonies or rookeries. But unlike birds and crocodiles, which both incubate their eggs, the lead author said based on the characteristics of the nests, titanosaurs likely laid their eggs and then left the baby dinos to fend for themselves, although more data is needed to be sure. After an all-time warm start to the European ski season, the Balkan countries in the southeast have finally welcomed their first snowfall. Skiers in central Bosnia and Herzegovina hit the slopes to finally enjoy their favorite pastime. This area has received about eight inches of solid snow, making it impossible to ski on some of the rockier slopes. But for most visitors, that's satisfying enough. Hordes of people line up at the ski lifts and joyfully glide down the white trails. Guest numbers peaked over the Christmas and New Year holidays, but many left as artificial snowmaking was unsuccessful in the subsequent warm weather. Now the mountains are bustling once again. And coming up, Super Bowl 57 is almost here, and preparations are underway in Arizona. The printing company behind the graphics for the game is hard at work. Get the details in just a minute. The Detroit Mercy Guard Antoine Davis breaks the NCAA Division I record for most career three-pointers. His father and coach talks about how those 513 three-pointers were made in a very unique way. He may be only a few people in the country where his guide hand is facing the basket. Most people's guide hand is here. 
And so when they shoot the ball, they need a guide hand like this. But when Tron shoots it, it got his guide hand go to the front. Those numbers are surreal at the end of the day, and just still now, I still, I probably won't feel this till after my college career is over, or probably later on down the line. But that's a lot of points and a lot of threes made. Davis also holds the record for most consecutive games, scoring in double figures. He's likely to set more records before his college career ends. He is fast approaching the second place spot on the all-time scoring list. The top spot is held by the legendary Pistol Pete Maravich. He is also nearing the all-division NCAA record for three-pointers set by former Division III player John Grotberg. Davis has avoided playing at a school with a more well-known basketball program, even though higher-level schools have made offers. He would love to play in the NBA after his college career, but if that doesn't happen, he would be happy playing overseas. If neither of those options turn up, he wants to be a basketball skills development coach. Super Bowl 57 is just around the corner and preparations are underway in Glendale, Arizona. For a sign printing company, it's crunch time. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the last minute details. Large format printing company Blue Media is humming. Dozens of workers are preparing banners, decals, and a variety of graphics. They'll be used to decorate the State Farm Stadium, buildings in downtown Phoenix, the Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport, and the team hotels. Massive HP latex machines produce the signage. The biggest one is 18,000 square feet. You've got building graphics that can range all the way up to 70 feet wide by 300 feet tall that we're doing in a variety of different sizes and materials from perforated window vinyl, to a mix because we have some buildings that not only have glass on them but have textured surfaces. Hundreds of Super Bowl 57 props are ready to go weeks in advance, but banners with the two teams are more on deadline. We actually arrive with those four, final four teams and start producing the second the clock hits zero because we'll have a lot of the pieces that will be installed within 24 to 48 hours after we know who the teams are, we're already starting to install graphics with those teams on them. Blue Media is working with the NFL on an immersive canyon experience that will lead fans into the ticketing area. It's inspired by Arizona's numerous canyons and red rock formations. Orr says the work for a Super Bowl starts about nine to 10 months before the game. So, um, we will, coming off this Super Bowl, we'll start working on the Super Bowl 58 in April uh, and putting everything together and going over, uh, you know, what are some of the different environments that we're working on, start planning out, you know, what we can do in each of those environments, working with the NFL on what could the designs look like. The AFC and NFC championship games are on January 29th. Super Bowl 57 will take place on February 12th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Now to California, where San Diego football fans and puppy fans can unite to cheer on two puppies. The Furry Brothers made it to this year's Animal Planet Puppy Bowl. San Diego's Helen Woodward Animal Center sent the two brothers to the 19th annual Puppy Bowl. They will compete for the Lombarki Trophy for Team Fluff on February 12th. Carlos and Crockett are dachshund blends with, quote, distinctly unique looks, but both of their gameplay is equally on point. 
The annual Puppy Bowl features two teams of adorable puppies representing rescues and shelters from across the country. The Woodward Center first joined the Puppy Bowl in 2019. Last year, the center had three competitors in the big game. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 